welcome to TLDR for Parents, a place for busy parents who want to be the best they can be. I'm Suzanne McCauley, parent, educator, consultant, and reader of all things parenting. Welcome to episode six. Say hi to the people, Megan. Hello. We are still talking about How to Raise an Adult by Julia Lithcott Hames. And we had talked about doing the second two parts of this book all in one podcast today. As I looked through parts three and four, I realized there's so much good stuff in part three that I want to talk about that I don't think there's any way we could do both parts in this one episode. We're going to deviate from the plan a little bit and we're going to do part three today and we'll do part four next week so that we can talk about all of the amazing information that she gives us in part three. Part three is called The Case for Another Way. And she basically is giving all the reasons why we need to begin thinking about parenting in a different way. And she starts by saying, we're mammals. We're mammals who wear clothes and have complicated lives, but we're still mammals at the crux of it. And it's the job of all mammals to parent themselves out of a job. We have to really be looking at ways to do that. She starts talking about this study that was done in the 1960s by a developmental psychologist named Diana Baumrind, I think is how you say it, or Baumrind. But she researched different parenting techniques and their impact on children. And she basically puts them on a continuum and left to right, it's less demanding to more demanding. And then top to bottom, it's more responsive to less responsive. And from that, they derive four types in the four quadrants of the chart. As these two continuums intersect, left to right, less demanding to more demanding, and top to bottom, more responsive to less responsive, she goes through the four types, one in each quadrant. So the first one she talks about is authoritarian, which is in the demanding and less responsive quadrant. Parents that display the authoritarian style are strict. Um, they provide punishments for non-compliance. There's a lot of because I said so. They don't really want to reason with their kids. What she says is these kids have a lot of responsibility at home and very few freedoms outside of home. The next quadrant she goes through is the permissive indulgent parent. So this is a parent who's undemanding and less responsive. They tend to cater and attend to every need and request of a child. They're reluctant to establish rules or expectations. They give in a lot. They don't always follow through on consequences, etc. The next one she talks about is the neglectful parent, which would fall in the undemanding and unresponsive quadrant. So these parents are, I mean, they range from hands off to criminally negligent. They're unreliable in most or all ways. So this is definitely a quadrant we don't want to be in. And then she lands at authoritative parenting, which is um, both demanding and responsive. So these parents have high expectations. They have limits that are upheld with consequences, differing from punishment, right? Because punishment, we want to cause shame or pain to teach a kid not to do something again. But consequences are just what comes naturally when choices are made, right? We can have great consequences and we can have negative consequences in our lives. It also looks like reasoning with kids, talking through things with them, engaging in that give and take for the sake of their learning and giving children freedom to explore and fail and make their own choices and learn from them. So she goes through those four parenting types and then the rest of part three is about specific ways to cultivate an authoritative parenting style. She gives some very specific tips. She talks about giving kids unstructured time and how important it is that they engage in free play and 
that they engage in it throughout their childhood, even in the teen years. And of course, when we say play, a lot of times we picture kids on the ground playing with blocks and yeah, toys and stuff like that. But really, she's saying they need unstructured time in which they can engage in activities that are creative and engage. Yes, freedom to choose and engage their brains and their creativity in certain ways. So that's the first thing she says is they need unstructured time. As a subset to giving them unstructured time, she talks about knowing your kid. Like what degree of freedom is your child ready for? And what type of unstructured time is best? Where would you like them to have the unstructured time? Like any of that that helps frame it in a way that will enhance their development is good. And then she talks about creating agreements with other parents, like having a community of people who are committed to free play so that your child can engage with peers in that way. And then um, offering materials and equipment that foster imaginative, imaginative play, letting your kid decide how and what to play, and work on creating space between you and your child, letting them really explore themselves, creating a culture of free outdoor play. She says a lot of our kids don't get enough outdoor time. Especially now, I feel like the more we are afraid of what could possibly happen and all of that stuff, the more kept inside our kids become. And their screens. Our kids all want to be on their screens. That's exactly right. Um, Encouraging that time outside. And she even says, in terms of letting your kid go outside, give them a cell phone to stick in their pocket. If that makes you feel better and it makes you feel like you'll be able to give them more outside time, do it. But then she's also very clear on enforcing limits around electronics, treating a cell phone as a tool, etc. And then she talks about getting inspired, just using this creative time to engage with your kids in an inspiring way, encouraging change in your community, engage with your kids in community service projects and doing things that are fun within the community and then modeling play like what do we do that's fun for ourselves like what are we modeling play in adulthood interesting interesting ideas about around unstructured time and play and then she talks about helping children experience flow and this is something we talk about in gifted all the time Mm -hmm. so i've loved reading this section of the book because like a cool crossover between my professional life and and this book, really. But she talks about uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's whole idea of flow, which is that it's almost like we're in flow. So we're facing challenges of a certain task, that productive struggle, but we're so into it that we will keep at it. We will lose track of time. It's something we enjoy immensely. Most adults have experienced flow in some part of their lives. And it's helping our children find a way to figure out what their flow thing is. And she talks about natural free play being the environment in which kids can experience flow. If you think about being little and being out playing and just totally losing track of time. The sun went down and you were like, oh man, I got to get home. But you didn't realize that... The whole day had gone on. Yes. Hours and hours had passed, right? I found that super interesting. And she talks about how... When our children experience flow, it sometimes helps them figure out what they want to do and be in the world. And that's totally valuable, too. She talks about play over the lifetime. It provides the opportunity for children to learn, develop, and perfect new skills that build competence. 
It is the natural mode to master anxiety from the overwhelming experiences of everyday life. It builds the capacity to cope. It helps build the ego's capacity to mediate between unconscious and conscious realities, which enhances our ego strength. And then it repeats or confirms a gratifying experience that fuels a child's investment in life. I just really liked that way of thinking about it. So that's her first part of cultivating an authoritative parenting style is really mastering that giving of unstructured time and helping your child engage in um, free play and helping them find flow. That moment where you lose track of time because you're so engaged in something, even if it's challenging, you don't just give up. You want to push through because you're so enjoying what you're doing. Okay. The next thing she says is we've got to teach life skills. And I thought this was really interesting because she talks about some of the things in developmental delay, applied behavior analysis, ABA, and then um, relational development intervention as a foundation for kind of teaching life skills. So she goes through those two really interventions. We use them as interventions in school, right? But she talks about how this one researcher put it together and, and into this format of first we do it for you, then we do it with you, then we watch you do it, then you do it completely independently. independently. So in school we call it, I, I do, do, we, we do, do, you, you do, do, right? But um, that's just an easy way to remember it. So if you struggle to remember all four of those steps in your brain, you can just say, I do, we do, you do. Yeah. So then she goes in to give us a sample set of life skills that kids must acquire. In the last episode, we talked about the list she gave us of things that we must make sure our 18-year-olds can do. Well, this section, she kind of breaks it down. So she says, ages two to three, our children can be engaged in their own small chores and basic grooming. Um, They help put toys away. They dress themselves. They put clothes in the hamper when they undress. They can clear their plates after meals. They can assist in setting the table and they can brush their own teeth and wash their face with assistance. Two to three-year-olds should be doing those things. Four to five-year-olds, important names and numbers. When your child reaches this age, safety skills should be high on the list, right? So they should know their full name, address, and phone number. They should know how to make an emergency call. They should be able to perform simple cleaning chores, such as dusting, easy-to-reach places, feeding the pets, identifying monetary denominations, and understand the very basic concepts of how money is used, and then brush their teeth, comb their hair, and wash their face without assistance. Help with basic laundry chores, such as putting their own clothes away and bringing their dirty clothes to the laundry area, and then choosing their own clothes to wear. Ages six to seven, uh, she says we should focus on basic cooking techniques. So kids at this age can start to help with cooking meals and can learn to mix, stir, and cut with a dull knife, make a basic meal, such as a sandwich, help put the groceries away, wash the dishes, use basic household cleaners safely, straighten up the bathroom after using it, make their beds without assistance, and bathe unsupervised. Ages eight to nine, they can start taking pride in personal belongings. So by this time, they should be able to take care of their own property. So this includes being able to fold their own clothes, learn simple sewing, care for outdoor toys, such as their bikes or roller skates, take care of personal hygiene without being told to do so, use a broom and dustpan properly, read a recipe and prepare a simple meal, help create a grocery list, count and make change, take written phone messages, help with simple lawn duties such as watering and weeding flower beds, take out the trash, 
phone messages are funny because I feel like that was probably from when we all had yeah. home phones. Now we just yeah. all text each other, right? Um, ages 10 to 13, gaining independence. So 10 is about the age when your child can begin performing many skills independently. They should know how to stay home alone, go to the store and make purchases by themselves, change their own sheets, use the washing machine and dryer, plan and prepare a meal with several ingredients, use the oven to broil or bake foods, read labels, iron their clothes, use basic hand tools, mow the lawn, and look after younger siblings or neighbors. There's several on that list I won't let my 11-year-old do. (laughs) There we go. Here we go. Um, I was thinking about ironing. Yeah. I haven't even... I would not hand my child an iron. (laughs) I haven't even broached ironing with my 15-year-old. but also, like, I don't iron my own clothes, so... (laughs) Right. And I'll take a hot shower and just hang this up in the bathroom with you, sweetheart. Okay. Um, Ages 14 to 18, more advanced skills are learned. So... By 14, your child should have a very good mastering of all the previous skills. Spoiler alert, I have a 15-year-old at my house, and I'm feeling like I need to revisit some of these lists. I feel like we should turn these lists into a post, Suze. This might be helpful for people to yes. see it. Okay. We will make a post of this with slides for you. Um, ages 14 to 18, so more advanced skills. Perform more sophisticated cleaning and maintenance chores, such as changing the vacuum cleaner bag. Do we even have vacuum cleaner bags anymore? I don't think so. Cleaning the stove and unclogging drains. Oh, oh that is man. the worst job. I don't even no. want to do that. No. Oh, man. Okay. Fill a car with gas. Add air to and change a tire. Read and understand medicine labels and dosages. Interview for and get a job. Prepare and cook meals. I want to hop back to understanding medicine labels and dosages. I was at a mothers of preschoolers meeting probably, I don't know, 13 years ago. And we had a speaker about um, drugs and stuff like that. Keeping your kids off of drugs. Dare for grownups. And one of the things she said was we should start at a very young age talking to our kids about over-the-counter medication. Mm. Hey, see this medicine I'm about to give you? The back tells me I can give you one to two tablets. So I'm going to give you one to two tablets and no more. And that we're going to use this medicine for its intended purpose. The other thing that that she told us to constantly be doing from the time they're tiny is looking at prescription medicine. I'm going to give you this medicine. Do you see how your name is on the bottle? We don't ever take prescriptions from bottles on which we do not see our own names. So those are some conversations you can have way before the 14 to 18 year old range that I think are tremendously helpful, especially given the landscape around drugs right now, how it's all coming not all, much of it is coming in pill form. Um, It's just good to start having those conversations early and often. Okay, young adults preparing to live on their own. Your child will need to know how to support themselves when they go away. (laughs) (laughs) There are still a few skills they should know before venturing out on their own. So they should be able to make regular doctor and dentist appointments and other important health-related appointments and calls. Have a basic understanding of finances, be able to manage the bank account, balance a checkbook, pay a bill, and use a credit card properly. Understand basic contracts like how to read an apartment or car lease. Schedule oil changes and basic car maintenance. So I just thought those lists were so helpful because when they say, oh, you should be teaching your child life skills. You're like, oh. What are those? Yes. Okay. Which one? Yeah, what do you I like need? how this, this is broken down by age too because mm-hmm. it gives you a really good indicator of like based on where my kid's at, what can I be doing 
or should I have already done? Right. And what's a reasonable expectation? Right. right? What do I right. What skills do I need to go back and pick up yep. now looking for yep. these <laughs> earlier ages? Okay. And then the next thing she talks about is teaching kids how to think. And she has an interesting conversation here about undermining thinking at school, like kind of what we're doing around teaching to the test, et cetera. But what I'd more want to focus here is what she talks about when we talk about undermining thinking at home. Um, we're often caught up in like the mothering approach or the parenting, fathering, hovering approach of, you know, kind of managing the homework, the testing, the activities, the choices, the tasks, instead of letting our kids figure them out for themselves. So she says the ways we undermine thinking at home are we overprotect, mm-hmm. we become their bumpers and their guardrails, we yep. assess risk for them, all of that. And that doesn't actually help them in the long term. We overdirect. We tell them what to play, what to study, what activities to pursue, and at what level, what colleges are worth looking at, what to major in, what career or profession to pursue. We solve problems for them, shape the way they dream. So that's what they view as over direction. And then um, another way that we could be undermining thinking at home is we handhold. We go to bat for them with teachers and coaches. We act as a concierge for the logistics mm-hmm. of their lives. We second guess the decision of authority figures. We correct their math homework, fix their essays, and overly edit or outright write their application. All things to think about in terms of undermining that ability to really develop thinking skills at home. She also talks about teaching our kids to think about more than themselves. Mm, yeah. And there's lots of stages in child development in which the self is the main focus of thoughts and activities and everything. So that's normal. But she says we need to talk to our children about thinking about things that aren't just themselves. So she says for a couple of suggestions, come up with a topic about which there are different perspectives and have conversations around what, what does the other side think about this? What do you think about that? What, what might somebody who doesn't think what you think think, right? And then ask your kid what they think. What is your opinion? And tell me why that's your opinion. And of the different ways this could work out, which one works out best, right? Play the devil's advocate, mm-hmm. which I yep. love to do that with me my too. kids. <laughs> it's just fun. Um, not to torture them, but because it makes no, but them... it challenges them. Yeah, it stretches yeah. them a lot, yeah. which I love seeing their brains mm-hmm. stretch and come up with different things. Encourage your kid to respond to your point of view. So if you have a point of view, you say, hey, this is what I really think. What do you think about what I think? Respond to my thought on it. And then for the advance, she says, switch sides. So you have this whole conversation and then say, okay, now I want you to, you take on my perspective and I'm going to take on yours. And let's see what you can say when you think about it from my perspective. And then she talks about letting them speak up for themselves. We have to develop our kids' voices for themselves so that they can speak up and manage themselves in the world. So she says, value your child's voice, value it. Your child needs to be able to think for themselves and be able to initiate and respond to conversation with the people that they'll meet. And then make a goal for yourself. Decide that you will let your child speak up for themselves whenever possible and increasingly so. So, And then every time you succeed, you're telling your child that you believe in their capacity to think for themselves. So I love that, like setting a goal for yourself to kind of stay out of it. Love it. I think we see that a lot in school too. The self-advocacy piece is missing Mm -hmm. because because parents step in because it's hard to let your kid struggle. But it's been interesting with the evolution of like email and stuff. I see more kids self-advocating through email, which is great because it's the first step. I love it. I love it. Um, I always tell my kids, if you're emailing a teacher about something academic, mm-hmm. go ahead and send the email. Mm-hmm. If it's about anything behavioral or that yep. could be tied to consequences, just CC me on it. Yep. Other yep. than that, 
So those are the two guidelines we set yeah. for email. And our 15-year-old yeah. emails her teachers on a very regular basis. So. My 11-year-old has just started using email to advocate for himself on academic stuff primarily. But yeah, yeah. it's been great. It is good. Um, and then resist, 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 she says. Instead of nudging them to speak or whispering in their ear what to say, just resist that urge to step in and let them try to figure it out. Um, it's all important in terms of having the opportunity to develop it for them, develop it for themselves. And then add your thoughts when it's necessary. Of course, there are some times that we have to step in. We must say what we think a little bit. Yeah. Well, and too, I was thinking about in December, my daughter had a terrible reaction to an illness and her fingers literally swole straight. Like they Mm. were swollen to the point that she couldn't really bend bend them. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm emailing now because (laughs) unless I want her to voice to text and send it with a bunch of errors and all that. So there are times when you just have to intervene and that's that. So she says, let them speak for themselves and teach them about their voice. And then she says, prepare them for hard work. She talks about how this generation is missing a work ethic. And I think that's true, but I would offer not all of them. There are a lot of young people who I believe are very, very hard workers. So I want to acknowledge that too. And then she talks about the role that chores play. They're our child's first job, right? So holding them accountable for it, um, having them done with excellence and giving them the grace to learn how to really do them well. And then she talks about how we need to let our children chart their own paths. Purpose matters. Everybody has their own purpose. We help our children find their purpose, not direct their purpose or state what we think their purpose should be. Truly letting them figure out what is your purpose. Mm -hmm. And she talks about embracing the kids that you got. Because, yeah, a lot of times we have expectations going into parenthood of the kind of kid we're going to have and what they're going to be capable of. What they're going to look like us or they're going to look like your spouse. Yeah, every all of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and just really letting them say what their purpose is. Figure it out for themselves. And then she talks about tips for helping tweens and teens figure out kind of who they are and and how you're going to accept them as they are. So she says... For helping tweens and teens, number one, accept that it's not about you. It's about your kid. So you have to set aside your definition of a successful career, what you'd be proud to be able to say to others about your kid, or what you always assumed or hoped your kid would be or do. And that's not easy. That is hard. Yeah. Yeah. So let me not understate that. But really embracing that your child's life is their one go at it. And we want them to do and be what they need to do and be. So that includes letting them choose. And then noticing who your kid actually is, what they're good at, what they love, and helping them pay attention to what they're good at and what they love. And asking them, are you proud of yourself? Because it's not about whether or not we're proud of them. We need them to be proud of themselves. And then she talks about exploring with diagnostic tools, like, you know, the idea of strength finders and discovering your strengths and all of that. Not necessarily to pigeonhole your kid into sure. a certain thing, but to just give them ideas of things they might look look at for potential careers or things to invest their time in. And then be interested and helpful. What they're interested in, you're, you're interested, interested in. in. Which is hard when your kid wants to talk about Minecraft worlds, yes, <laughs> and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm sure you've read that age old adage listen when your kids talk about the small things, for yep. someday you'll realize that the small things were the big things. Yep. So, 
let us invest in listening to the small things so that when the big things come up, they come and talk to us. Know when to push forward and know when to pull back. And I find this especially true with tweens and teens. I love that she put this in here because I know I can tell in a conversation if I need to push a little bit or if I need to pull back, but you really have to listen to be able to figure it out. And that's true for the teens that I live with and for the teens that I have mentored and known through student ministry and all of that stuff. A lot of it is just being able to suss out the conversation. Is this a conversation where I need to push? One where I need to pull. Just really being aware of those two options and thinking about what's happening when they're talking to you and then helping them find mentors. Like how often do you want to tell your kids something and you know they're not going to receive it from you? But if another caring adult in their life said it, it's like the best thing they've ever heard. Yes, totally. So helping them find those mentors and figure out who else can speak into their lives. She talks about preparing them for hard work. Again, kind of tying it back to chores, pointing out the hard work that the people that they admire have done or are doing. Don't do too much for them. Anything they can do, we want them to be able to do. Yeah, that self-efficacy, all of that. And then have your own purpose. Don't let your child become your purpose. You have your purpose in your life so that you can model leaning into your purpose and building a life around that versus leaning into completely controlling somebody else's life. That's not really a message we want to be... Yeah, sending or modeling. Then she talks about young adulthood and she has a section called want to keep them close. Gotta let them go. And I love that because I think that's true. And I want to read you a story here about a um, student at Harvard who she calls Tyler in the book. She says, Tyler, not his real name, represents the epitome of professional success for many. Close to 30 years of age, he's an associate at a prestigious corporate law firm in Los Angeles and a graduate of Harvard University and the Stanford Law School. But when it comes to how overparenting can hamper a kid's ability to find their purpose, Tyler's story is an instructive one. He began telling the story of his upbringing in a voice that was strong, eloquent, and warm. As a kid, I was an extremely hard worker. My parents really valued that, and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. They weren't doing my homework for me, but in every class, they knew exactly what was going on, and they were involved in every single assignment. When I was 12 or 13, they sat me down and told me grad school wasn't an option. It was required, and that it would be law school. Both of them are lawyers. And that's what they said I was going to do. If that's what they said I was going to do, I was going to do it. I always did what they said. Their message was, this is the path, keep on it, and anything outside of that path was frowned upon. At Harvard, Tyler majored in government. My mom called me multiple times a day and my parents visited me all the time. This impacted not only his academic choices, but his ability to form relationships with others. He graduated from college, and after a few years working at a casting agency in New York, his parents said, it's time for law school. Tyler chose Stanford in part to get away from his parents, but they came along anyway. They picked out an apartment for me. They negotiated with the landlord. They paid the rent. I didn't have to do anything. They even decorated it for me. My friends would moan about having to pay their own way, but I'd tell them, there's something to that. You're making it in the world. I'm still trying to please my parents. In law school, Tyler noticed his peers seemed like they were there on their own volition. But I was there because this was the next step in the path laid out for me by my mom. I knew deep down that all of this help was problematic, but how could I say no? My parents had both lost a parent when they were young, and I knew it was bringing them so much joy to be so involved and do these kinds of things for me. During his first term in law school, his mom was still calling him every day and often multiple times a day. 
I'd been a quiet and shy kid, but one day it got to the point where I just didn't want to talk to her anymore. I had no control over the emotion that was coming out of my head. It just bubbled over. I yelled, your voice is the only voice in my head. I have to hear my own voice. It was the beginning of the process of putting myself back together. That phone call led to a drastic change in Tyler's relationship with his mother. I stopped talking to her for about six months. Wow. It was really, really, really hard for her. I told her, I'm not going away forever, but it's the right and necessary thing to do. Then I started intensive therapy. Tyler was in therapy for the better part of two years. I asked him when he first sensed something was wrong. As a kid, whenever I did something purely on my own, like writing songs and recording music, I was reproached. The piano lessons were great as far as my mom was concerned because they went on the resume. But when I was 15 and brought home a little CD of songs I had written and recorded, my mom said, did they say you were the next Elvis? No. Okay, that's what I thought. Sometimes my grandma would say something like, oh, Tyler, you have such a nice voice. And my mom would say, oh, let's not go too far. I don't see how she could have possibly worried there was a risk of me dropping out of school or not going to college. The fact that she couldn't even acknowledge the pure joy I got from that hobby, that she tempered my joy, tried to dial it down so much that my grandmother felt the need to stick up for me, was problematic. So she goes on to talk about more about Tyler and kind of his experience. But all of that is to say, we really have to let our children live their own story. And if we want to keep them close... We've got to let them go. And then she goes on to talk about normalizing struggle. And I feel like this has come up in every book that we've talked about. She gives tips for building resilience and letting the bad things happen. And then she lists mistakes and curveballs you must let your kids experience. Are you ready for this? No, I'm not really looking forward to it. (laughs) To be honest with you. Mistakes and curveballs you must let your kid experience. Not being invited to a birthday party. Experiencing the death of a pet. So all of you out there who have been resisting getting the dog, looks like you better get your kid the dog. Breaking a valuable vase. Working hard on a paper and still getting a poor grade. Having a car break down away from home. Seeing the tree they planted die. Being told that a class or camp is full. Getting detention. Missing a show because they were helping their grandmother. Having a fender bender. Being blamed for something they didn't do. Having an event canceled because someone else misbehaved. Being fired from a job. Not making the varsity team. Coming in last at something. Being hit by another kid. Rejecting something they'd been taught. Deeply regretting saying something they can't take back. Not being invited when friends are going out. And being picked last. For neighborhood kickball. So I like that. I know that whole list just it's heartbreaking, but also we cannot simultaneously wish for resilient kids and also wish for nothing that builds resilience to happen to them. It's just not how it works. Man, it is hard to see your kids suffer or struggle, but I like to keep in the back of my mind this is for their good, this is building them up. And then she closes this part of the book with really listening to our kids. We really have to listen to them. She says we do that by being available, 
by letting them know that we're listening and by responding in a way they will hear. Just being present, right? And those three tips are based on the APA, the American Psychological Association's communication tips for parents. So if a kid is talking to us, we're not looking at our phone, we're looking them in the eyes to have a conversation or we're side by side in the car because sometimes they don't want uninterrupted eye contact. Sometimes they open up more if you're both looking out at the world together. And then letting them know you're listening. Repeat back what they're saying, not in a cheesy and weird way, parents, <laughs> in a normal way. <laughs> and then respond in a way that they'll hear. And to me, that means not trying to solve everything right away. That means just listening. And Yeah, which is hard because it's easy to try and solve their problems. Well, and I always want to move right into the solution generation part too. of things. But I think that's part of us being their parents. Yeah. We kind of view whatever they're sharing with us as heartbreak. And so we're like, I got to move them out of this as quickly as possible. But keep them from the pain. Yeah. Oftentimes they're not ready for that. And we then rob them of the opportunity to develop their own solutions to problems. That is a wrap on part three of this book. And we will do part four the next time we're together because there was just too much good information in part three to cut it shorter. Thank you for listening. And remember, whatever you're facing in parenting... It won't always be this way.